Hey everyone, this is John. And this is Ryan. And this is the Nintendo Show, the best day Nintendo podcast on the internet. No Wes this week. Yeah, Wes is, Wes is out of commission. He's doing things. He's doing stuff and things. Uh, but we're doing a podcast and we're doing a retro show. And what we do on the retro show is we travel back in time 21 years. So that will bring us to the month of November of 2002. And Ryan, what a time to be alive. Oh, it certainly was. This was a this was a jam-packed month again. Holy shit. Yeah, l- last month we had to divide October into two shows and it's we're doing two shows for this one as well. There's just way too yeah, much too much going on. There are so so many games. So, we won't vamp anymore. But let's kick things off with as we usually do, just some historical context for yeah. when these games are coming out. Put put you into a, a day in the life of November 2002, right? Yep. Well, the, the only real big thing that I had was there was an election. It was November 5th. It was the 2002 midterm elections. So for anyone unfamiliar with American politics, we basically have major elections every two years because our House of Representatives has elections every two years. But then they sort of stagger things like the the Senate also has elections every two years, but they're six-year terms. So we're not elect, electing all new senators uh, every two years. It's like a, one-third of the senators are up for re-election. Um, it gets chopped up like that. But then uh, presidential, presidential elections are every four years. So midterm elections are when they're just basically re-electing all the members of Congress and some of the senators. But the Republicans gained a net of two seats in the U.S. Senate. They retook control of the Senate. Um, they also uh, retained control of the House of Representatives. They gained eight seats on the majority there. Um, and that's uh, a bit of a, a deviation from what typically happens in elections, which hasn't always been the case, and especially in recent history, mm-hmm. um, where the party of the president tends to lose seats when there is a midterm election. So, for anyone unfamiliar with uh, American politics, we have basically have two major political parties, and when one of those political parties has the control of the presidency. When it's a midterm election, so there's not a, a presidential election, it's just the, the Congress, they tend to, that party tends to lose seats because it's sort of a, uh, a, a way of people expressing discontent with what is happening. And it almost always happens. Mm-hmm. So people are almost always discontent, no matter <laughs> which political party is in power. They're like, no, we don't like what you're doing. Just put the other guys in there. Yeah, well, it's like a pendulum swing. It's kind of always seemingly supposed to get you back to the middle by that happening. And and while that is sort of the tradition, it's kind of worth noting that we literally just had our midterm election cycle in present day in 2022. And in that cycle, Democrats actually, again, picked up seats, mm-hmm. even though, uh, you know, Biden, Democratic president at the time. So um, some of the conventions are shifting a little bit but yeah generally it makes sense that you would see that one party comes into tap power and there's going to be a backlash against it. it's like the entire tea party movement mm-hmm. that came out of uh barack obama's first term in office um and there was a huge backlash against that and uh you know a, a ton of republicans got elected in the very next off season cycle the next like you're saying it's it is it is intentional that they stagger them so that you know, House seats are up every two years, Senate's up every six, and the presidency is every four. It makes it so that not in one fell swoop can the whims of, of the pop voting populace really change everything all at once. It's very difficult to do that. Yeah, and the, the major reason 
for the Republicans doing so well in a midterm election, even though they had the White House, was because we're, we were a country at war. And for whatever I reason, so, yeah. for whatever reason at the time, and probably still currently, there's this conception that like when we're at war, it's better to have Republicans in power, which, I mean, if you like being at war, sure, that's exactly what you want. Yeah, it's amazing anyone can say that when you look at the quagmire that was the Afghan war that lasted 20 years, most expensive war in the history of mankind, and a war that we lost. And we just got out of it. Like, <laughs> right. a, a year ago, as we were recording, it, it finally ended. But the um, the the general convention, well, what, what ends up, uh, I think the only other thing I wanted to say about this was that you had a lot of Democrats, especially, you know, your what you would refer to like maybe as like a, a blue dog Democrat, a Democrat that's more moderate than progressive. Um, also very hawkish, uh, again, uh, on, on topics like uh, terrorism and going to war and the Patriot Act and these sort of things. And a lot of the justifications that these politicians gave years later was that like, well, we had to like be more like pro national security or we would have lost all these elections well you lost anyway so right. it would have been better in my opinion as someone who's never had to run for office it's like it's better to lose on principle rather than lose saying things you don't actually mean yeah absolutely but well anyway. and I, I think that this sort of dovetails into your next thing that you were going to bring up in terms of american politics yeah right yeah because they had legislation queued up basically uh, of course, they didn't like gain full control over the Congress until January of 2003 when all those people are inaugurated. But George W. Bush signed into law on November 25th the Homeland Security Act, which created the Department of Homeland Security, the largest government reorganization since the National Security Act of 1947. So in 50 years, it's the, the biggest thing that kind of sort of sh uh, shifted around the government. And this... Uh, did things like create the TSA. I think that's probably the the most like household recognizable thing that the Homeland Security Act did. Yeah. It seems like it uh, was not not exactly like the FBI or the CIA, but it sort of just became this other in intelligence organization to an extent who's ostensibly there to sort of protect America from future terrorist attacks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's, you know, and it's it's interesting. I guess at one point I, I find this interesting um, is that, you know, we always, they always talk about presidential secession. So, like, God forbid a scenario occurs where, you know, the president or and then the vice president were to pass simultaneously that it's the House majority speaker. So in this case, it would be Mike Johnson, that fucking, <laughs> that loon. He would be the one that's technically in power. Yeah. Um, and I forget exactly the order of operations after that. I believe it passes through Senate majority leaders, Senate minority leader, et cetera. Like it goes through a number of people, but then it eventually gets to the point where it goes to all of the cabinet positions. Right, unelected positions. Yeah. Um, and well, one you would think, well, you would think it would be somebody within the fold of the president themselves. It's weird that you go to, to a House majority, the House speaker. Who very well may be of a totally different party. Again, someone who is totally, completely unaligned with our current president would be the House Speaker. But then to that, if you're going through all of the different cabinet houses, you actually go in the order in which they were created. 
And somebody brought this up where they were like, if you can imagine a scenario where this many powerful people in the American political and government and in this apparatus would all pass away, it would have to be probably from some coordinated event, right? You would think it would be someone like the Department of the head of the Department of Homeland Security, right? You would think that's somebody who you would want to hand the keys to if they were still alive, but it has to go through like the Department of Agriculture first, the Department yeah. of Education, yeah. because it's based on the order in which that department was created. Yeah, so, I'm, I'm actually yeah. looking at the current line of succession right now, and really like. Yeah, yeah, like like you're saying, the vice president, the speaker of the house, and the president tem uh, pro tempore of the Senate, who's the uh, not the majority leader of the Senate right now, because Chuck Schumer's the majority leader, but Patty Murray is right now the president pro tempore of the Senate. Um, but then that's the last elected position that is in the line of discussion. After that, you get to all the cabinet members: Secretary of State, Treasury, Defense, the Attorney General. Yeah. Well. But yeah, like, uh, like you're saying, because they're create like they're in order of their creation, um, the Secretary of Homeland Security is the last one, just behind the Secretary of Veterans Affairs, yeah. Dennis <laughs> McDonough. If you're wondering, yeah, it seems like that whole thing needs to be kind of re uh, realigned. Mm -hmm. And again, it it seems like this would be under the purview of Department of Homeland Security because something really bad must have just happened, and you would think it would be better to hand hand it off to that department head versus again the department of education they we don't you you would hope someone with the skill set to run that organization is not like a, a a combat veteran or someone that has coordinated war efforts mm. <laughs> you know uh you got any current events or current events of this that were in november 2002 i actually do i do have some fun stuff to talk about i feel like uh, i have one really sad thing we'll get to but i think for the most part it's all fun um so starting from the top, something you brought up earlier off air, but this is the the time in history in which Michael Jackson has his infamous baby dangling mm. incident. Mm -hmm. um, this is, it's so weird to say, it sounds so mad-lived, but the baby dangling event occurred um, at the birth of his son, um, Michael Prince Jackson II, just called Prince uh, Jackson, um, and the child was born of a surrogate mother. I don't even think that we know who the actual mother was. I think that her that she remains anonymous throughout all of this. And the reason he did it is not because he's like some weirdo that likes to dangle babies off of balconies. Now he was some um, weirdo for sure, but this wasn't a hobby. Certainly a weirdo. He was kind of egged into doing this because the paparazzi and the press wouldn't leave him alone. Everyone wanted a photo so badly of this baby that, like, they wouldn't give him any peace. So he kind of just sort of snapped and went out to the balcony of the place he was at and then held the baby over the ledge so everyone could take photos. And, uh, you know, it's extremely dangerous that he did that. And it, 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 of course, then became this huge thing about, like, how is he fit to be a parent if this is how he behaves? And it's like, well, this is what happens when you're under the pressure cooker of 24-hour media scrutiny. Yeah, when you have that sort of scrutiny and that sort of like uh, lifestyle of, of wealth and attention, like, rules of no, normal behavior just kind of fade into the background. Like when your your life is so different from a normal people's life, you forget about normal people rules. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, and hey, uh, so if you're wondering, like, about what's happened to Prince, like, he's he has done an incredible job of literally just staying out of the media spotlight entirely. 
Um, you know, at this point, he, he's what, like 21 years old, but he is not a person of, of note, of fame. Um, he's managed, he's seen, I'm sure he's seen how his father struggled with fame and how it, you know, in, in part led to his death. So uh, he has avoided it entirely. He does, however, apparently maintain a close relationship with his half-sister, Paris Jackson. Um, so, yeah, hope, hope he's out there doing well, you know? Good for he's him. Going to optometry school. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's probably, like, one of those people that won the lottery and then, like, made sure that no one ever found out he won the lottery. Mm. <laughs> people very well might, may not even know he is the son of Michael Jackson. So that's kind of wild. Um, moving on. A bit of technology news to talk about. I think this is interesting. So the Sanyo SCP-5300 uh, smartphone is released. Oh, shit. This is a flip phone. A flip phone that, mind you, costs $400. And why would anyone want to pay $400 for a flip phone? Which in today's, because... which in today's money is $8,000. $8 billion <laughs> for one of these things. It's kind of absurd. <laughs> No, but I, I guess you know at the time you could have bought you could have uh, bought probably a PS2 and yep. a couple of AAA titles while you're at it mm-hmm. uh, with that with that much money. Um, but at any rate, so this is a South Korean uh, Sanyo is a South Korean uh, smartphone manufacturer. The thing that they did that made this phone so much better than all of the other phones it wasn't that it had like a new version of Snake or something. It actually had a camera installed on it. Hmm. This is sort of the origin of of a feature that is now not only like ubiquitous to every single phone, it is oftentimes the selling point is how powerful is the camera and how many on do your you phone. Have? Yeah, exactly. And they managed to get this, I'm not kidding, by just the end of 2003, mind you. So just at this point, 14 months we're talking, they're going to sell 80 million of these things. Shit. 80 million of these smartphones will be sold. Absolutely unreal. Um, it is a huge, huge technological breakthrough um, you know, you'll see companies come along like BlackBerry. BlackBerry will have their own niche in the market, um, and uh, obviously, Palm pilots. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the the iPhone will come around within the next ten years. That'll be another huge leap. But you know, for what this did at that time, absolutely revolutionary, and worth noting how um, you know how important that will become for a technology of the future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I want to create a new thing we talk about. I know we already talked about this. is so fucking bloated. I'm sorry I'm doing this, but we're making another topic that I want to talk about month by month. I think it will be our No apologies. Segment. No apologies necessary. This is called memes. This is, this is the origin of memes that occurred in 2002. Very good. <laughs> I looked it up, and it, not every month is there a meaningful meme, but there are oftentimes some funny ones. So I want to talk about those. The first of which is... One that got circulated on FARC back in the day, which was a image that says, every time you masturbate, God kills a kitten. And <laughs> it was a picture of this brown little Domu-kun thing. It looks like a little brown monster with teeth chasing this adorable little kitten through a field. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah, a, a classic meme format. Yeah, this is like an OG meme. Also, the song Peanut Butter Jelly Time. First oh, okay. appears on the NBC sitcom Ed. This is a song produced by a group called the Buckwheat Boys. Um, it would be used a million times in a million different ways. It would be so outdated and outplayed within just a couple years of them creating this song. You could think of it as something akin to like the Numa Numa song, maybe, or the Harlem Shake, hmm. I guess. It would just be this weird little 
touch point song of a meme. Chocolate Rain. Yeah, yeah, Chocolate Rain, another another classic example. So that is it. That is our memes. Those are our memes of the month. <laughs> nice. <laughs> TV, some things happen in television. Uh, the television show 24 premieres. Okay. Uh, very much of its time, right? 24 is like each episode is like an hour long. I never actually watched the show. Um, I know it stars Kiefer Sutherland, and they yeah. get a whole bunch of seasons of it, and it's supposed to be about like this dude fighting terrorism or something. So I really don't know all that much about it but you know hey that's there that happened yeah it was, it was a, a um, huge huge show i never watched it either but big hit for i think fox was the network that did that show Mm-hmm. yep um also espn aired around the horn the first episode of around okay. the horn oh i've watched i mean i haven't watched an episode in years but i watched this show a ton back in the day yeah i used to um, like here we here we go we're both about to sound old i used to uh have my dvr record those <laughs> right yeah with um i uh, oh gosh it's tony kornheiser and who's is uh the mike Chicago wilbon guy. mike wilbon they're your your two mainstay hosts of the series um and it was kind of nice this is sort of the dawn of the hot take format of mm-hmm. modern sports you know yeah, sort of like i guess rapid fire cover as many topics as you can within like the, the 24 minutes you have allotted for the show Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, for the most part, they're very knowledgeable guys. I think Kornheiser is sort of a New York guy, and Wilbon, of course, he's a Northwestern graduate. Like he, he knows Chicago sports very, very well. So the two of them um, had great chemistry. A long-running series, you know, good for them. Mm-hmm. And so this is the hard part. This is the thing that we have to talk about that's difficult. So, and I, I am aware that last month we talked about the DC sniper. We concluded that chapter, and we we talked about bowling for Columbine. What what a what a horrible thing that was, but an event occurred that may be sadder than both of those, and that is the episode Jurassic Bark aired uh, from Futurama. Mm. This is the one where, of course, uh, Fry discovers that his dog is being used in a uh, some sort of science exhibit, um, and he wants to bring his dog back to life, um, and jokes ensue, of course, for about 20 minutes. Um, and then he gets to the end, and then he discovers that the dog, in its sort of uh, calcified form, is actually 14 years old, that the dog lived this long and healthy life. And then he says, I don't want to do it because the dog wouldn't even remember me. And he already lived a long, happy life. He doesn't need to come back. Yeah, the Cut dog to, moved on. Yeah. Cut to 2000, and then you see the dog waiting patiently every single day until it passes in front of Panucci's Pizza, waiting for Fry. Yep, devastating. One of the truly saddest things I've ever seen in yep. my life. What what a what a heart wrenching episode. Do you, do you remember this episode? Oh I, yeah, remember? I remember this episode well. They were mm-hmm. like uh, protesting outside, like the the whatever. What do you want, Fry's dog? When do you want it, Fry's dog? <laughs> <laughs> no, I remember this episode got to me. It was so sad. I didn't know sh- I didn't know the show was capable of having that depth of emotion. Right. Right, um, you don't typically get that sort of thing out of like the, these animated comedy series. Yeah, real, real gut punch. And I actually found this quote from Billy West, which I thought was really beautiful because he was sort of asked, why does this episode mean so much to so many people? Why does it resonate? And he says, I'm, I'm quoting here, um, you know, we want them to live forever or at least as long as we do, but they don't. You go through a lot of beautiful little friends along the way in life and see, and you have to see them gone. Uh, 
but it's the fact that dogs are always loyal. Um, that's what I love about cats and dogs. I wish I was half the man those stupid cats thought I was. <laughs> you know, I thought that was a really, really, really sweet sentiment. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely love this episode. Oh, yeah, for sure. 10 out of 10. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that wraps up that wraps up the current events. That's what, what you would have uh, lived through a day in the life of no- November 2002. All right, good. End of show. Um, there are a ton, I think like the technical term is a metric fuck ton of video games to get through. Some of these... It's we, obscene, yes. Yeah, but some of these we might not spend more than like a few seconds on because we're just going to go as rapid fire as humanly possible. I'm going to kick us off with the GameCube games, and then we'll move to the GBA. And there's some PS2 stuff that's uh, pretty culturally impactful, so worth mentioning them as well. First up on November 5th, we got Cubivore Survival of the Fittest. And you may ask yourself, what? And it's a good question. So this is a game that kind of like became like this, this uh, within like Nintendo circles um, on the internet. It became like this, this mythical a game that exists but you can't get because it was such a rare print. Um, it was developed by a company called Saru Brune and Intelligent Systems also uh, did the programming for this. We've talked about Intelligent Systems a couple of times before. They do the games of uh, the Advance Wars, Fire Emblem, Paper Mario. They work with Nintendo very closely and exclusively even though they're not uh, owned by Nintendo. Saru Brune is this odd little developer. So. I think we talked last week or the week before about a joint venture between like Nintendo and a Japanese marketing company to create a game studio. This developer is a joint venture between Nintendo and a, a media company called Mar, sorry, Mariglu, uh, a Japanese media company, and they wanted to make game studios to support software development for Nintendo systems. And there's a lot of speculation about whether this was a reaction to the lack of third-party support for the N64. That would make sense, but that's kind of hearsay at this point. But they had a a couple of goals. Um, One would be to create Nintendo content exclusively and to have games be ready within five years. And I think this, this sort of venture was started in the late 90s, 98 or 99. So you're starting to see some of the fruition of that. Do you remember that company Noise that we talked about that does custom robo? Oh yeah, yeah. We talked about them uh, pretty in depth. They they came out of this and they're the ones that kind of stuck around for longer than the rest. Uh, There's another company called Umbrella that came out of this venture that lasted for a little while. But the the media company, Mariglu, uh, goes defunct in May of 2003 and it takes uh, Saru Brune, the developer of this game, and some other developers uh, went with it. Uh, they went defunct as well. Um, the, the studio that made Cubivore was headed by this guy, Gento Matsumoto. He's a former Nintendo designer. I'm not sure what he's up to now. He doesn't really have many game credits to his name after this one. But Nintendo did not publish this game, even though it was made by developer... Uh, that was a, a joint venture of Nintendo and this media company. They didn't publish it in North America. Atlas published this game in North America, which doesn't really show a lot of faith in Nintendo's part. Like some other games that we'll talk about over the course of the next uh, couple of uh, retro shows, um, 
the development did not start on the GameCube. The development for this game started on the N64DD, but then moved to the GameCube because of uh, hardware issues and timing issues with uh, the N64. Uh, it's an action game. You engage in real-time combat. Enemies have attack patterns. You learn the attack patterns. Oh, and there's a cube aesthetic. All the enemies and your characters are all like these little cube creatures. And you eat them. That's why it's called Cubivore. But you, you learn enemy attacks. You evade their attacks. You learn when to, to counter and vanquish them. You have this little cube animal. What you need to do is you need to harvest the cube meat from the carcasses of your cube enemies to eat and sort of add their sort of capabilities to yourself. However, because the goal is to ultimately move up to the top of the food chain and defeat the, the creature at the top of the food chain. However, it's like a generational game. You don't get all of the effects of these upgrades that you're, you're getting until you create offspring and your offspring will have these mutations based on the things that you eat from the things that you vanquished uh, so it's, it's got like this pretty deep system of varieties of meat and creatures and mutations based on what you eat and based on like your mating partner that you use it's a, a really ambitious odd creative idea with a really unique art style that was just way too ahead of its time nobody gave a shit about this game in 2002 if they had done this game 15 or 20 years later on the switch i think it would have been a huge hit just because how weird it is i think i you know it there is an uncanny resemblance to of all things minecraft uh-huh sure this. i feel like there's definitely that sort of blocky aesthetic you're talking about mm-hmm Mm -hmm. I had I'd never heard of this game. Yeah, I mean, obviously gamers in 2002 were too mature and edgy to care about this, and the game failed mm -hmm. miserably. Uh, it it kind of got mixed reviews. It was commonly criticized for like technical issues, like the camera and the graphics. People who complained about the gra graphics are joyless fucks. That's mm -hmm. not a legitimate complaint. Um, you can get the disc for this game for a mere $500. Yikes. Disc only. For a boxed copy, you're looking at around twelve hundred bucks. That is that is unreal. Now, may, maybe some of the sort of anti-nostalgia, like can you have nostalgia for something you've never played? I think like some of like the positive attitude around this game comes from it being like this unattainable thing. Maybe if more people were actually able to get their hands on it, they realize like, yeah, maybe this isn't so great after all. But you can't get it. You can't get this game legitimately anywhere. So maybe that sort of adds to its mystique. I think so. Yeah, there's probably definitely a sense of of rarity, like you know, like the collector's market probably is like obsessed with it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, I kind of want to put it uh, as far as ranking. I don't have anything else to say about this one. I kind of want to put this game right between Star Fox Adventures and Wave Race, which would be at number twenty. Any objections? Um, I am I am totally fine with that. Um, I think it's an interesting bit of history. For sure. Let's move over to... Uh, do you have any uh, GameCube games? Oh my gosh, yeah. I've, I've got, are you kidding me? I've got... Uh, I have six GameCube games, and, not, and I didn't think of that one even existed. I've got uh, eight games that are not GameCube games, and then a whole list of ports, a whole slew of ports oh, nice. to talk about. Uh, is Medal of Honor one of the ones on your list? Medal of Honor. Yeah, yeah, that got ported. Uh, Medal of Honor Frontline yeah. got ported uh, to the GameCube and Xbox six months after its PS2 release. Yeah, we did talk about so, that one a little bit back in yeah. May. I don't really have any sure. further thoughts on it, do you? 
Uh, no, no, that it, it sort of became the lesser uh, success story to this retro, like, historical, historically accurate first-person shooter. Most people play Call of Duty. This one is focusing much more on larger environments with tanks and planes and boats and shit like that. So, I don't know. Uh, I, I didn't look up to see how well it holds up as a port to the GameCube. But, you know, GameCube doesn't really have a lot of shooty shoots, so it, yeah. it might be a fun one. Right now, our our top rank, and I, I looked at some of the other reviews, and it seems like this was a fairly competent port. Um, right now, Time Splitters 2 is our highest first-person shooter at number 6. I don't think it goes higher than Time Splitters 2. I, it certainly doesn't go higher than Time Splitter 2. And brace yourself, Time Splitters 2. You're about to get busted by a, <laughs> an FPS. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um... I don't know, do, do you think, like... Well, we just put Cubivore at number 20. Do you think that Medal of Honor goes above Star Fox? Um, gosh, you know, it's hard to say that because Star Fox is, like, a Nintendo thing and Nintendo wants it to succeed. But at the same time, I feel like Medal of Honor probably does, yeah. Okay. How, how about uh, above Mario Party? No, no. Okay. So that would put it um, uh, above Monkey Ball or below Monkey Ball? Below, below Monkey Ball. Okay, so I, I'm comfortable, yeah, because that would put it at number... We, we could put it at number 18 above NBA Street, or it could be at number 19 below NBA Street. Mm, I, Is I the would... World War II game better, or the NBA Street game better? <laughs> Gosh, I think we're getting a little nitpicky at that point. I'm fu- I, I think that it is the company it keeps around there. If you want to put it above it or below it, I think that's totally fine. Um, but I, th- I think, yeah, it, it makes sense to put it around that territory. By the way, I would not be shocked if we end this episode with two new top ten games. Oh, for sure. I'm just I'm just gonna say that right right now. Yeah, there, there's a couple of real bangers. We're not gonna spend any more time on Medal of Honor. I put it at number nineteen because okay. I think that's funny to have it below NBA Street. That's <laughs> yeah. our scientific method. Uh, right. How about the Sonic Mega Collection? Did you have that one on your list? I actually don't know. I don't have Sonic Mega Collection on there either. Uh, developed by Sonic Team, published by Sega. It's a collection of Sonic games. One, two, three, Sonic and Knuckles, 3D Blast, Spinball, Mean Bean Machine. There's some unlockable non-Sonic games like Flicky and Rystar and Comic Zone. Um, Sonic games are dumb. I don't like them. Yeah, um, you don't. Uh, I watched a retrospective on the GameCube that that guy Scott the Waz is going through. Sure. And as cringy as a sketch comedy may be at times, I think on the whole he's actually one of the best resources for histor- for a historical perspective on Nintendo stuff. And he actually put up a pretty stirring defense for it. Um, I think that he's not the he's not a Sonic hater, and he thinks that it's an incredible omnibus package that you get all those games. So, I mean, I guess you could take his word for it. I, I don't know. It's it's the competitor. It's fucking Sega. I mean, do we do we like it more than Sonic Advance 2? Ooh. Ooh, I don't know. No, no, we don't. No, we don't. Okay. Um, Sonic Advance 2. <laughs> how, how about uh, Mario Party? Do we like it more than Mario Party? Uh, I wouldn't put it above Mario Party. Okay, let's go down to, to Star Fox. I don't know if I yes. want to put... Yes, You want to put it above Star Fox? <laughs> I think so, yeah. That, Star Fox Adventures? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. How, how about uh, Medal of Honor? <laughs> yeah, it's better than Medal of Honor. Monkey Ball? No, that's where that's where we draw the line. Okay. I'm gonna put so it's going right below Monkey pa- Ball. Part of me has this like soft spot for <laughs> Monkey Ball. I think it's a really cool, really cool game. I think it's like a, a much more ambitious project than like a, a Santa collection. No matter how exhaustive this 
Sonic Collection may or may not be. Yeah. And if you think I'm out of line, you know, hey, let me let me know. I, I think I think yeah, I would trust your judgment over mine on a lot of this. I don't feel strongly enough about Sonic games to okay. <laughs> put right. a bunch of a fight about this one. But here we go. Now now we're getting to some of the good stuff. Okay. Resident Evil Zero. On no- there we go. November yeah. the twelfth, developed and published by Capcom. It was a prequel to the original Resident Evil, which got a brilliant remake on the GameCube earlier in two thousand two. I think that was in April or May. Uh, but this is the adventures of Rebecca Chambers of Bravo Team, who we previously met in other Resident Evil games, and Billy Cohen, who's just super fucking fucking edgy, man. He's just he's got yeah, he, he is he is Edge Lord Supreme. Yeah, yeah he, he was uh, con- convicted of war crimes or something, and Wrong, like a, yeah, wrongfully convicted, as we find yeah. out. <laughs> yeah, so he's like some sort of uh, you know combat veteran expert killer guy that just so happens to stumble into this unlikely buddy cop combo yeah. with Rebecca Chambers. They, they end up uh, both on a, a zombie-infested train where he's being transported to his military tribunal or whatever it is that he's going. But that um, this has a lot of this, the familiar gameplay elements of the Resident Evil series that you come to expect pre-Resident Evil 4. Um, you're know, like, talking things like uh, consumable and scarce ammo, different weapon types, handguns and shotguns that have different effectiveness and firepower and range and that kind of thing undead enemies animal based monsters limited inventory space uh, ink ribbon saves so limited amount of saves but it also diverges from the resident evil formula in several key ways oh oh and uh fixed camera angles with tank controls this will be the last time that yeah, the last time we're gonna see this mm-hmm. yeah they're gonna move away from this so the the sort of the way it diverges from the Resident Evil formula is that you have dual characters. Uh, you're controlling both Rebecca and Billy Cohen. Um, there are several ways you can set it up. You can have uh, one character just kind of follow the other around and kind of like set them up to where like they'll also like they have their their own ammo that they have to carry around. You have to keep both characters supplied with a weapon and ammo and you can have it to where like they're not shooting at all to conserve their ammo. However, the way it works in the game is if you're controlling one character and you're shooting, every shot that you take is cons- uh, consuming one bullet. But if you have the other character, the AI controlled like sort of mimicking you, it won't use ammo at the same rate, which is interesting. Uh, I'm not sure if that if it calculates damage the same way if they're not using uh, ammunition the same way. But the way that I would usually play is I would only have one character do the shooting, so I had the most control over what ammo is actually using within the game. So you can have like them follow you and like mimic you, or just kind of stand there and do nothing, or you can tell them to hold their position and just control one character going through the game. And this is key to a lot of the lateral puzzle solving to where you have to do one thing with one character in an area that will affect something in another area that the other character is doing. And there, there are a bunch of scripted points throughout the game where the the narrative is dictating that the characters are separated. Other times where you, you have to figure out manually, okay, we better separate at this point so that we can multitask in the most efficient way possible. As a really interesting idea, some of the other things uh, that they did was there are no save boxes. So traditionally in Resident Evil games, you know, you have your save box that magically transport your items to all the other save boxes throughout the game. And that there's there's none. In order to uh, clear inventory space, you just drop shit on the ground. 
and that's where it stays. And if you need it again, you gotta go back to that room and pick it back up. Now, when you know the, the method, the most efficient path, the most efficient route through the game, you know like where you're going to, to put things in order to make the most efficient use of your time. However, the first few times you're playing through the game, you probably have no idea and you're just like, okay, well, I guess I might not need this, so I better drop it, only to realize you need it a few rooms later and have to go back and get it. Uh, it, um, it's. I think that's. I think that's true because it's been a while since I played this game, but I remember a couple of things about it. Is one, this is far more puzzlier than any of the other Resident Evil games I remember playing. Hmm. There is just a ton of puzzles and. I think to that point when you're saying about inventory and how many different things you need, how many just different objects you need to get through puzzles, it's like they were probably thinking like, hey, we're giving you an entirely separate character with its own inventory space. So figure it out. But then you also have to like decide whether that person is going to have a weapon. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, the... Oh, and they they do like have slightly different characteristics. Uh, For example... Like uh, Billy being the the tankier dude uh, absorbed more damage, whereas I think Rebecca was the only one who could actually mix herbs together for more effective healing items. I think if, I think yeah. that's the way it worked. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, like for me, like the big thing about the game was it didn't really have a particular memorable setting outside of like the first train vehicle that you are in after that you you go to because you're not in the mansion right you're going to like a facility like a training facility or something yeah that's what they call it you do end up at one point and like in this residence of sorts but it's not nearly as memorable as the mansion in the first resident evil or the rpd in resident evil 2 now it's much more like spread out rather than like having you work out this this tangled web in one area for a good chunk of the game um, but yeah, I like graphically looks really, really good. It's on par with the really nice looking Resident Evil remake. I don't think it's uh, remembered quite as well as that uh, it's a remake, probably for the issues that we've been talking about. But like the the original Resident Evil had been such well worn territory. There's already like a familiarity with it when the remake came out. Uh, again, this game started out as an N64 game. Uh, it had a playable demo of the N64 version at the Tokyo Game Show in 2000, but got moved to the GameCube. Uh, really positive reviews. People seemed to like it, but the big detractor that ended up on a lot of reviews, it, it seemed like people were just tired of tank controls in 2002. I think so, yeah. I think that at this point, you've seen a lot of the hack-and-slash 3D action games come around, mm-hmm. and those probably feel such more mobile and fluid that, yeah, that kind of navigation doesn't really make a lot of sense. And, and just to hop back on your point, like, we cannot, like, overstate how gorgeous this game looks. Yeah. Like, it is, there, it, it's not, again, it's not the most top-notch graphics, but games as art is absolutely is. Every grimy, you know, room just has so much detail in it. It really just feels and looks as dirty as the game is. You know, it's really remarkable how just how good this game looks oh, and there are things that are just downright gross like everything yeah. that they do with like leeches in this game it like it's, oh, yeah. it's the leech stuff is it's it, very nasty it's slimy and like all like the the sound effects to it yeah it, they they did a really good job of creating an atmosphere mm-hmm. um really positive reviews like i was saying i uh, shipped about 1.25 million pretty solid 
that's good for a GameCube. Yeah. I think it makes it one of the best-selling non-Nintendo yeah. games on the GameCube. Yeah, it, it probably puts it in the top 30 or 40 all-time yeah, for, for sure. GameCube in terms of sales. I got ported to a ton of different systems. You can get this one on Switch, and they go on sale. These Resident Evil games on Switch, they go on sale with some pretty regular frequency. So definitely worth getting. But now we got to figure out where it goes. I think, just, just kind of a, as a starting point, the Resident Evil remake right now is number two. I don't think it goes higher than the remake. <laughs> However, why don't you read me out maybe, give me four through eight. What are we looking uh, at? Animal Crossing, Eternal Darkness, Time Splitters, Star Wars Rogue Leader, and Pikmin are four through eight. Okay, I would also not put this above Eternal Darkness to compare apples to apples. Um, a bit more of a novelty, Eternal Darkness? I, I think Eternal Darkness is is probably the more interesting game historically. Mm. I don't think it had the sales. Maybe it did have the sales, honestly. Like one and a half, one point two five million is not that many units, frankly. Um, I, but I think they're I think they're both really really good games. I would probably put it below Eternal Darkness, but certainly above that Rogue Squadron game. So the only one in between those two is Time Splitters. I'm totally comfortable putting it above Time Splitters. Yeah, let's do it. Cool. That puts it at number six. So let's move over to the next game. Uh, do you have Harry Potter Chamber of Secrets on your list? Yeah, I do. Are we going to review... what? Which seven console are we going <laughs> to review on this one? Because it got a Game Boy Advance, a Game Boy Color, and a GameCube release? Wild. While well, they're still doing a Game Boy Color game in 2002. Holy shit. Yeah. Um, but this one out on November 15th, developed by Eurocom, published by EA, based on the novel slash film property, as you might have guessed. Um, uh-huh. I mean, it, it reviewed, like, I suppose surprisingly well, like seven and a halfs and eights, which is kind of the ceiling for, like, this sort of tie-in schlock. It seemed to do okay. Uh, here, here's something that I noticed that was really funny. Um on the Xbox, it achieved platinum status, which means it sold 100,000 copies. That is fucking pathetic that that is your floor for platinum status. What the fuck? Yeah, yeah, that's kind of tough. I mean, at least, like, you know, Nintendo sold fewer consoles of the GameCube, but at least they have some self-respect for what they're willing to do. People forget, though, but only by slightly, like a million, million and a half. Consoles. Yeah, yeah, they're very, very close, very, very close in in total sales. Yeah, that's kind of that's, that's. I mean, awesome. I don't really have anything to say about this game. Do you? Um, no, I mean, it, it, given it's just how much they spread this into the ecosystem, it sold millions of units cross platform. But I mean, it's yeah, it's another schlocky tie-in, and this artwork like will always be forever stuck in my head because Harry Potter looks like he's fifty, <laughs> like he's supposed to be a child wizard, but like this kid, this kid looks like. Oh my god, this art is awful, absolutely awful. And I guess next episode, and I, I you know, we'll get Wes back in the mix because he likes talking about the movies and stuff. No. But we'll we'll talk about the actual Chamber of Secrets film that that came out, you know, simultaneously. So I think this game goes like right around Spider Man. I'm fine with that. Uh, above or below? Oh, it probably sold just just because just because the film was better than. Chamber of Secrets, I think. We're going to put it below Spider-Man. Okay, yep, I agree. The film that this is the tie-in that is based on is going to be what drives the review. That puts it at number 35 out of 41. 
Okay, I'm fine with that. And it is a you know, and maybe this game's a little better than that, but hey. It is. And you know what? We're only reviewing the, the, the GameCube version. We're not ranking the Game Boy Advance. Right, 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 right. Uh, and it is above Pac-Man World 2, so there's that. <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm fine with that. So there's this game, Ryan. I'm, I'm sure you don't have this one on your list, but it's called Darken Sky. Dark, I don't have Darken uh, Sky. You're, you're adding more. At one point, if you just want me to clear out everything but the one I, I think we most want to talk about, I will just tell you the ones I have listed. Okay. Um, but go on with Dark, Darken so Sky. So this one was out November 16th. This was not a good game, but this was a weird fucking story. Okay, this is why I bring it up. So uh-huh. Mars, the candy company, and Simon & Schuster, <laughs> the book publisher, made some games based on M&M's candies. Uh, I don't have the list in front of me right now, but things like like Eminem's Kart Racer, that that kind of schlock that they would put out every once in a while, mostly on PC to this point. They wanted to make a Skittles game as well. So the uh, scenario writer for this game submitted a script basically as a joke where a uh, sort of like a ponytail attired female protagonist would go around hitting things with a staff but then be able to cast magic spells based on the flavor skittle she ate that's wild and it got the green light with only a few notes and those notes included things like no swearing because they dropped a couple of dams in the script and also no snakes they could have snake like creatures but no snakes in the Skittles okay. game. So this is an action game where the character, Sky, with an E at the end, there's the play on words from Dark and Sky, um, mm-hmm. casts magic by eating flavored Skittles. That's impressive. That's really, really cool. So, like, if you're eating a grape Skittle, what happens to you? I don't know. I didn't go that deep down this rabbit <laughs> hole. <laughs> but... Like, this is like it, it didn't it reviewed terribly like really really bad this is a terrible game um you can get a copy for 80 bucks you coward do oh it get a get a copy for 80 bucks can i ask you a question do you organize your skittles as you eat them do you have any specific like um or do, you, do you, is a handful of skittles just a handful of skittles or do you try to like break them out and be like okay i'm working through the yellows first so i can save the reds for the last only when i get to the end only when there's a few skittles yeah. left will i sort them out like that otherwise we'll just it's a free-for-all yeah, because I, I honestly cannot say I've ever been able to discern discern any difference in the flavors. Yeah, of them. it's just mostly just chewy sugar, but there is like a slight difference in flavor. But it's yeah. not like Starburst level of difference. And if you get the, like the best kind, which are of course the sour ones, then like there's no discernible difference. Your mouth hurts by the time you get to the end of the bag. Yeah. Uh, this game goes at number forty-one. <laughs> oh, ouch! Yeah, well, it's dumping it. It's right below agent under fire 007 uh the only game worse than this is tarak yeah i think that's i think that's yeah again that's that's the company it keeps uh why don't you tag in with some okay um i will just so right so we talked oh we haven't talked about the first one i have mentioned here which is a combo release on the the place i believe the playstation one and the gamecube spyro enter the dragonfly oh sure yeah that one uh was november 19th yeah, uh, so very poorly received. Uh, noted that it had buggy, that are those buggy and had poor controls. And in spite of that, I think just because people kind of like Spyro, it's a property people want to do well. It did well, but no, this game is a uh, game is an absolute mess. Uh, even Spyro fans are like, this thing is just just terrible. 
Yeah, I never really understood the appeal of the series. I think it maybe was some of this like kid friendly on the PlayStation. So there's people who grew up with Spyro, mm-hmm. so there's a nostalgia for it. But I've played a couple of Spyro games for like a little bit, probably a total of, like four hours in my entire life, and I don't really understand the appeal. Uh, but this one was published by Universal Interactive. It is notable that this is the first Spyro game that was not like a, a console Spyro game that was not exclusive to a PlayStation. Also, it was not developed by Insomniac. Uh, who was the developer of the first three PlayStation Spyro games? So they moved on to a little game called Ratchet and Clank, which we will get to. Mm-hmm. But yeah, kind of a kind of a turd of a debut for a Spyro game on a Nintendo console. Yeah, it seems like they should have just like ported the others first that they were going to mm-hmm. do this. I think I think it's better than Dark and Sky. Yeah. I, I, oh yeah, I, I think that's fair to say. Sure. Do you think it's better than Agent Under Fire? Probably. Probably. Uh, how about um, the Pac-Man World Two? Mm, no, no, I'm not putting that thing above Pac-Man. Okay, I'm I'm gonna put it uh, below Pac-Man, but it's gonna go above Outlaw Golf. That's for sure. Okay. Uh, what else you got? Uh, one more. I'll 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 mention, and then I'm gonna pass it back to you. Um, so this one came out on PlayStation Two, Xbox, GameCube, and Game Boy Advance. Mortal Kombat Deadly Alliance. Yeah. yeah, technically Mortal Kombat 5. Yeah, this is the fifth mainline installment in the game. I think there was a handful that were released between those. Um, it's actually a pretty big advance in the series because this is the one that first one that moves to full 3D animation. Um, hmm. It goes into, I guess, like, I mean, it's, you're mutilating people constantly. It's hard to say this thing moves into darker territory. But, um, you know, that's. I guess it feels a little bit more, I don't know, more robust in terms of a story or more mature, I guess. Um, it is an entire lineup of characters that, like, you really don't even recognize in some ways. Like, there are a handful of familiar faces, but it is a lot of new new people and a lot of them are looking a lot different than what you remember them as being mm. uh, because of the way that they've capped up. I'm not a big Mortal Kombat guy. I, I know that when they ended the last one, it had something to do with them closing out Scorpion's storyline, completing Scorpion's revenge arc. So now this one picks up, and like Sub-Zero looks like he's from the future now. He doesn't look like what he used to look like. And so many familiar faces are just outright gone. Like, I guess Sonya's still there, and like I think Ajax is in it now, but it's all uh, just yeah a whole bunch of a whole bunch of like samey looking beefy guys and eh, like it just it didn't it didn't look too appealing to me and I really don't even like Mortal Kombat all that much I, th- I think that you know it's they're capable of making good games and they certainly do but this one just did not look particularly great to me and yeah it was was not met with the best reviews um, I mean they were they were okay reviews but. Nobody was outright trashing it, but this wasn't like truly incredible. Also worth noting, it did sell about three million units, so not bad. Not bad for them. Not bad at all. Mm-hmm. Right now, our highest ranked fighting game, I think, is that uh, Capcom versus. I'm trying to find it on the list here. Oh, like Tatsunoko? Um, not? No, it wouldn't be Tatsunoko. Capcom versus SNK. I would put this below that for sure. Okay. Uh, the the next game down. I think it goes above Crash Bandicoot, but um, <laughs> sure. The, the next game below Capcom versus SNK is aggressive inline skating. I'm okay with putting it above aggressive inline skating. Not that we're trying to like group everything together by genre, certainly, but I think that's a fair enough spot for it. Works for me. 
So that's good enough for number 32. <laughs> yeah. Unless you have any other uh, GameCube games to talk about, I'd say we get to the main event. I do have a couple of other ones, and we won't uh, rank them right here, right now, but just kind of mention that they exist. There's a Reign of Fire... <clears throat> oh, excuse me. Uh, I couldn't get it out. There's a Reign of Fire game based on the tremendous film. Oh, my God, really? <laughs> uh, released on the GameCube. Uh, it was developed by Kuju, who also will do Battalion Wars on the GameCube, oh. published by BAM Entertainment, not BAM Margera's publishing company. He doesn't have one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the most notable one about this one is that the game is split into two campaigns, one where you follow like the events of the film as a human character, and another one where you play as a dragon destroying oh, the world. That's before fantastic. The, before the events of the film. So then um, I guess that begs the question, which is the better game in which you portray a dragon, this or Spyro? <laughs> it might be I mean there's no way this game is bad it has to be perfect it's a 10 out of 10 game I think so I think you're right uh, there was also a game called Street Hoops this one was developed by Black Ops Entertainment uh, this is not an NBA game the game like one of the the selling points that had like real street hoop players there are no NBA licensed players in this game it reviewed poorly <laughs> it sold worse and then I only bring that one up to also bring up BMX X. this was the uh the BMX. Uh, oh, that got a GameCube release. It got a GameCube release. Oh wow. Okay, I didn't have that one listed as a GameCube title, but yeah, that one was on my my notes to discuss. Though, then we'll get to it later. Let's just knock <laughs> out. Um, do you remember? Uh, did you play that Star Wars Jedi Outcast game? Oh, I didn't even look through my ports list. There probably are some here, but yeah, um, yeah, Jedi Outcast is a fantastic game. Um, I believe it came out on the PC first, though. Mm-hmm. I think it came out like maybe four or five months prior to this. Yeah. I was actually playing this on the Switch, um, because uh, a lot of these old Jedi, or a lot of these old Jedi Knight games are now available. And Jedi Outcast is a fantastic game; it's really, really cool. It actually delivers a lot of that uh, 3D hack and slash action you'd want. You get to do actual Jedi powers and your lightsaber. It's, you know, the puzzle. There is some puzzling, but it's not like too intense. It's very easy to kind of keep up with the game, and the action's very fluid. I would just say that like it's uh, uh, there's just so many bad guys. There's just like, and, and even though they do have like stormtrooper aim, and and they're just terrible at shooting, there's just so fucking many of them that it actually ends up being kind of a kind of a tougher game. Hmm. Uh, I think it's genuinely great. I don't know how how well it got ported, but if it's anything like the PC version, it would be worth taking a look at if you're a Star Wars fan. And I've always wanted to kind of role play that of being a badass. Jedi. Well, the the sort of port, the consensus on the port was it wasn't like as technically capable um, as the the PC versions. You're looking at things like I think the biggest con- uh, the complaint was that you couldn't map the controls, and it wasn't sort of like optimized in terms of like frame rate for the GameCube, which is uh, which is a shame. Um, I don't think that anyone should go as far as say it's a lazy port, but I think there are clear signs on the GameCube that like the, the the resources, the TLC that you need to get these games running on a GameCube uh, is not being put into these ports to the console because the console is struggling. Um, the the ports, because the game got ported to Xbox and GameCube, but not PS2. The, P, the port from the PC to the Xbox reviewed better because it's just an easier system to port PC games onto due to just the nature of the system. But 
Um, it makes sense. It still did review well on GameCube. I think it's also worth noting that Vicarious Visions did the console port, which is a, a notable name in video games. Uh, it mm. was originally developed by Ravensoft, and they oh, did nice. game, games like Heretic and Hexen and mm. X-Men Legends. Yeah, classic. Classic titles. <laughs> but I think like it's worth to take a sidestep to rank that one. Do you think it's better mm-hmm. or worse than Rogue Leader, which is our currently our highest ranked Star Wars game? Rogue Leader is really, really good. Like Rogue Leader is just good on its own terms on the GameCube. I, I don't hmm I don't know. What what's give me a couple titles beneath that. Blood Rain. Yeah. Yeah, this thing's better than Blood, Blood Rain. Rain. Again, we're doing that thing, I feel like we're stacking them all together just by <laughs> by typing i think well actually i don't know um well no no i i do know that the blood rain port was definitely bad tony hawk um ooh. tony hawk 4 that's tough i would put it if i can sandwich it between those two titles i probably would i think i wouldn't put it as good as tony hawk 4 but i think it's you really have to put it above blood rain in spite of how uh, campy that game is there we go that's that's number 12 oh and one port to get out of the yeah. way well one last port and then I'm done um, Baldur's Gate 2 Dark Alliance yes. comes out for the GameCube and then PlayStation 2 mm-hmm. will get it December 1st let's talk about it now it's there so good yeah this one developed by Snowblind Studios uh, that was a, a company that was founded in 1997 it was an independent developer until 2009 it was acquired by Warner and they merged with Monolith Productions in 2012 after they released a Lord of the Rings game called War in the North. Uh, Monolith Productions is a North American studio, not to be confused with Monolith Soft, who makes Xenoblade. Uh, but this is like, like mm-hmm. Dark Alliance is a sort of spinoff or like a B-side of the Baldur's game, Baldur's Gate games that were originally developed by Bioware. Uh, it's an isometric RPG set in a sort of Dungeons and Dragons type universe. Um, lots of like borrowed or similar statistical mechanical aspects of Dungeons and Dragons. This developer will go on to make a couple other games on the PS2 called Champions of Norath, which is kind of like the Coke Zero version of Baldur's Gate. Um, mm-hmm. Again, technical issues with the GameCube version. It's inferior to the PS2 version, even though the GameCube is a more technically proficient system. Uh, this game, like Baldur's Dark, Dark Alliance, goes on to sell seven plus million, but not on the GameCube. It doesn't. <laughs> yeah, again, really impressive sales there. Um, and it's a format of game I really enjoy. Yeah. I mean, I, I do like my you know isometric hack and slash action RPGs with medieval undertones. Um, but at this point in my life, when this game came out, I was just mainlining Diablo 2. Hmm. So I just would not, I didn't, just didn't have time for this. Yeah, and it drew a lot of comparisons to Diablo 2 as well. That was sort of like the, the measuring stick for this style of game of the time. Mm-hmm. But on to the main event. Yeah, let's do it. Here we go. Metroid Prime comes out November 17th, developed by Retro yeah. Studios and published by Nintendo. This was the first of two Metroid games that were released on in November of 2002 on the same day. And the first Metroid games that came out since Super Metroid, way back on the Super Nintendo. Uh, Fusion, which we will get to, continues the 2D side-scrolling format. But Metroid Prime takes the series into three dimensions and first person for the first time in the series history. 
when this was announced, it was met with a ton of uh, skepticism. One, because of the format change and people wondering how they would like actually make a Metroid game as opposed to a sort of run-and-gun style, like Doom-like shooter. Uh, and also the untested developer based out of Austin, Texas and Retro Studios who didn't really have anything to their credit at that point. And they really knocked it out of the park. They maintained the bulk of what Metroid, what made Metroid games their own genre with a solid first-person shooter action. Like all of your classic weapons and collectibles are in there with your, your energy tanks and your missile expansions and you know your... your morph ball and your spider ball and your different types of guns and the different types of visors that allow you to uh, interact and solve puzzles um and i think like the way that it adapts a first person shooter they do some really smart things uh, especially considering the way that they had to invent a control scheme that made sense for the system it was on because on the gamecube you don't really have dual analogs you have two you have an analog stick and then you have a little analog nub which is not in a good position for like true dual analog controls for a first person shooter which i think like at this point had probably become the default method for first person shooter uh, mechanics but what they end up doing is they they kind of like use the shoulder buttons to like give you like a pause and a free aim kind of thing not too dissimilar from the way that resident evil 4 was originally set up but what what they do is rather than having like this fast pace like keep on running sort of like doomish uh action combat to it what they do is they they give you a bunch of enemies that is like okay now we got to stop and figure out how do i got how do i take this thing out first there are a lot of enemies that like have like armored fronts to them or you know they'll have like a like a, some sort of shield that you'll have to break down or some sort of visor that you're going to want to put on in order to most effectively take them out so even minor enemy encounters become like these little puzzles and it gives you a reason to like need to stop moving for a second which uh, works really well with the control scheme that they had to use in order to make this thing functional as a first person shooter and those are like uh because Metroid is also very heavy on platforming, and platforming is difficult in first person because you can't like see your feet, you can't see where you're going. They do this really genius thing that you don't really even notice until uh, someone points it out. Is when you're going for a jump, the camera just kind of tilts down just slightly so you can see more of your destination rather than what's directly in front of you. And there's this really genius way of making it to where like platforming is actually functional in a game that's uh, entirely in first person. But Ryan, you've, you've been playing this game of late. I actually have. Yeah, yeah. I've been playing the remaster that came out here in the year 2023. I think it came out first quarter yeah. this year. Mm -hmm. It's actually been a, been a minute since it's came out, but I actually just caught up on it. Having never actually played it, um, and by the way, I actually do think it's worth noting. You mentioned it earlier. Eight years. Oh my God, eight years is a lifetime. Yeah. When it comes to the world of gaming, and I think that if you go back in time into 1994 when the game came out, it was like three months after Kurt Cobain killed himself. Mm. That was the last time we had a Metroid game. That's how long ago, right? Like since then, they, there has been an entire console generation. Yep. That. Metroid had had no part in their main competitor Sega stopped making consoles entirely. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Sony didn't exist. They manufactured audio hardware, and they now look like they're the kings of the space. 
right? Microsoft made PC operating systems, and now they're looking like they might be the second place in console gaming. It's like that's, it's wild that something that seems like it should have been a staple franchise from day one of Nintendo is like, just now they're realizing, oh my god, people like Metroid, right? And uh, I, I think that this is what a brilliant reimagining of, of what this game should be. I think that it's not only... It, it, it is catching up to the conventions that came about over the eight years prior to it, but also it's sort of doing its own thing. It's taking what made those work, but then doing something totally different. Like you said, you know, this is like... It's not the Doom killer. They always prophesized what would be the Doom killer. It's they. It took the first-person perspective and used it in a way that you really don't see where it's not so much about like you're saying run and gun and grab the biggest nastiest gun and then shoot the nearest thing at you like this is very much a game where it's a puzzle and even the combat itself is a puzzle you know you're use it it utilizes the first person perspective in a fascinating way and i think it's very forward thinking very ahead of its time with what it's doing um like you're saying platforming is is hard to visualize for first person but they made it look flawless. Like you really don't even think about it as you're playing. Um, the environments look amazing. Uh, one of the best in-game maps I've ever seen. They're really, really smart level design. Like they're they're always introducing like new power-ups, and you think of like, oh, okay, well I can use this over here, and like, oh, what happens if I use this sort of thing over here? And there's so many like secrets that are tucked away. Uh, so many different power-ups to to find that are in places you wouldn't even think to look. Yeah, it's really genius. Oh yeah, yeah, and I think this is in a lot of ways a precursor to something like see even Portal mm. or Stanley Parable. There's there's so many games that now have the space to just use the first person perspective without having to have a pistol dead set in your 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 vision. And you know, and, and Samus, you do get to go around and shoot shit. Like that's that is part of the game. You're not not doing that, but it's it's done in a much more cerebral way. I feel like so, uh, really really impressed by this game. And again, I didn't play it on the original GameCube version. Um, and I know there's definitely been some some graphics overhaul. Um, yeah, you can tell they put a, put a lot of shine into it. But I mean, you can go back and watch the gameplay of the original and, and see that it's really really well made i do like my dual stick i don't know how long it would take to get used to trying to play it on a gamecube controller which i think is a great controller in general but it's just definitely not one that was built with the idea that you're going to be doing a lot right. of first person games. Sure. sure no the, the gamecube controller was uh, built in mind for things specifically like smash brothers mario kart mario sunshine legend of zelda like they they designed their controller around the software they wanted to make um, rather than around like what's going to be the, the thing that easily translates to as many genres as possible. And it, it's a Nintendo very Japanese company and first-person shooters to that point not popular at all in Japan. So they probably didn't cross their minds like, hey, what uh, what's how's a first-person shooter going to play on this thing? Mm-hmm. Um, but like, there's so many like nice little touches, even in the GameCube version, where you know when you, you fire your gun a lot and very rapidly you'll see like the heat rising off of the barrel of the gun uh when you enter an area where like there's a temperature change like your visor can fog up and you can see samus's reflection in the visor and those are things that are super impressive back on the gamecube um 
reviewed super super well one of the best reviewed games of the year goes on to sell 2.8 million copies which is good enough for sixth best on the gamecube right between luigi's mansion and animal crossing that's really impressive yeah. and you just got to remaster on switch go buy it go buy this game mm-hmm. and ryan i think this is our number one gamecube game so what's what's our number one game super currently? smash brothers melee yeah, yeah, I think you might be right. I actually think this may may just kind of bump everything down a notch. There we go. It's an ink. I'm handwriting all this. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think that is tough. What, what's number two? Just out of the curiosity. remake of Resident Evil. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. That that's that's. I think it's reasonable. I think it's reasonable. Metroid Prime at the top. So, uh, there's one other GameCube game, just to mention as a footnote here. There's another 007 game, 007 Nightfire. That was out the same day as Metroid. Oh, no, day after Metroid. It's unfortunate for them. Developed by Eurocom, published by EA. Uh, this was a, a step up, by most accounts, from the abysmal uh, James Bond Agent Under Fire, I think it was, that was in 2001, which is in the bottom five of our GameCube games. I mean, it doesn't... Doesn't take much to improve upon that, right? But yeah, I uh, reviewed pretty well, but like a competent but utterly forgettable first-person shooter. There's about a decade from the mid '90s to the mid 2000s where there's James Bond games coming out like annually, and we're getting to the merciful end of that era. Uh, mm-hmm. It sold best on Xbox, unsurprisingly. Uh, it was way outclassed by other first-person shooters on GameCube, like Time Splitters and Metroid Prime. So, should we go through some... Uh, that's it. That's the GameCube. Yeah. Can we knock out ports real fast? Just to oh, say sure. They go were? for it. Because there were a few more ports to mention, which is um, Metal Gear Solid 2 Substance comes out, which is a remake of just Metal Gear Solid 2. That comes out for the Xbox. Mm. Um, Marvel vs. Capcom 2 oh, yeah. comes out for the PlayStation And we had just mentioned that game. And that was originally... Yeah, that was a Dreamcast mm-hmm. game from 2000. Um, it's... I. I love I love Street Fighter Two World Warriors. I think it's probably still the best, but this is like gotta be number two. Like Marvel vs. Capcom Two is just an absolutely incredible game. So um, I actually played it. I remember having I had it on Dreamcast and I had it on PlayStation Two. Like this game, the game is absolutely fantastic. So now now I'm into just sort of the catch-all of everything else that came out. Uh, I got some GBA games. Oh yeah, yeah, can, of course. There's oh my god, there was a ton of gameplay. Yeah, for, for sure. Uh, I don't have notes on all of them, but just to just to, uh, to cover our tracks here. Uh, on November third, we got Contra Advance, the Alien Wars EX. Yes, I saw that. Of that course, developed cool. and published by Konami. This is, I'm sad to say, a sort of guttered, uh, gutted, and neutered version of the Super Nintendo classic. Um, no secondary really? weapons. No bombs. Yeah. No, bombs. no really? top-down stages because they couldn't like do the mode seven stuff. <laughs> they were they okay. replaced like the top-down stuff with stages from Contra Hardcore, which was a Sega Genesis game, I think. Uh, it does have co-op okay. when you have the link cable and two cartridges. But I mean, there, I don't think there's any reason to play this version. You can get a Contra collection for Switch. It is a fantastic game. It's a fantastic version of it. Um, Kind of sad that they weren't able to keep it intact for the Game Boy Advance here. You wouldn't think it would be that hard to do right. either. Was that thing really that groundbreaking? Right. I don't, they, I don't I th- know. When did that come out? Like 92, 93? They couldn't get it going on the system in 2002? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also a version of Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, on November 11th. There was a fully original Tomb Raider game called Tomb Raider <laughs> The Prophecy on November 12th. Uh, of course, uh, developed and published by Ubisoft. Uh, it, it was an isometric action game. It reviewed uh, pretty poorly, unfortunately. Yeah, well, but the, I'm, I'm not surprised that the GBA can't uh, render her assets correctly. <laughs> I think uh, the biggest complaints with that is it's kind of repetitive. You like go into a room, find the right switch to stand on, to open the door and keep on moving. Mm. The big one for the month was, of course, Metroid Fusion, which is about the same day as Metroid Prime. It was the yep. return of the 2D Metroid series. It's actually the, the sort of subtitle is... Uh, Metroid 4 uh, Fusion because it is a direct follow-up to Super Metroid which is uh, Metroid 3 um, and it is a, a kind of a a more horror take on the Metroid formula you know like Metroid games can be scary in their own right because you're not really sure if like you're totally prepared for the area you're going to next and then kind of create this sort of tense atmosphere depending on how they're they're setting up you know the, the enemies that you have to face um but metroid fusion does uh the the, the, the typical metroid thing that we're familiar from from like you know, super metroid and metroid prime where you start the game and then you get stripped of all your powers and then have to regain all of your skills and keep on moving forward they do this in two dimensions like metroid uh so super metroid and metroid and metroid 2 um you get a lot of your familiar power-ups morph ball grapple hook ice missiles uh that kind of stuff they, they do find um different ways to use all of these things and we've, we've talked about before the Game Boy Advance, the fact that it only has two face buttons. So there are some pretty like funky workarounds in order to use all the different skills, like having like to toggle the select button, which is a bit in an awkward position. So it's not like a a perfect uh, method for having so many different control like mechanics in your arsenal. Um, but I think for for the hardware that they're on with what they have to work with they do an admirable job of making things function well enough to play well but like the the horror aspects that i was getting to is that you're you're put into this derelict space station that has different like environments that are being taken over by different organisms but there are points in the game where you are you encounter this version of samix called the sax that is like a very powerful version of Samus that is kind of following you around through the game. Sort of like in a, a Mr. X Resident Evil 2 style. You have these scripted moments where you encounter it and you have to like evade it or find a place to hide until it leaves. So the game does a very good job of making it feel like you aren't totally prepared for what you're having to face next. Which, you know, but because it's, it's a well-designed game, you always do have the tools that you need in order to advance to the next area. Also, does a really good job of hiding uh, power-ups. If you're being really thorough, you can find them all, but it's been pretty time-consuming. Um, so lots of fun little puzzles to solve. And 
yeah, really, uh, really, really nice return to form for Metroid in this one. First 2D game, like you were saying, in eight years. Comes out the same day as Prime. I think it's a little bit overshadowed by Prime. And this is a game that is, of course, much smaller in scale as it is a game for a handheld system. Probably even smaller uh, in terms of just like total like real estate or geography that you go through. Probably smaller than Super Metroid. But it does a really good job of like, having mm -hmm. these interconnected areas in ways that you don't really expect. Yeah. Looks like it got great oh, yeah. reviews. Yeah. Really strong reviews. And it I mean, this is pretty good sales. If it's it's telling me here it sold one and a half million units worldwide. That's yeah, pretty good. Not too not too shabby. Not too pretty good. Mm -hmm. Uh Super Monkey Ball Jr. gets a Game Boy Advance release on November the nineteenth. That's pretty neat. We're pro monkey ball on this podcast. No. Uh, also there's a fantasy star collection on November twenty fourth. Um Fantasy Star is a uh, RPG series from Sega. This is a port of a Sega Saturn collection of the Fantasy Star games, except the Game Boy Advance version sadly did not have Fantasy Star 4. Uh, the, the Fantasy Star collections are typically like 1 through 4. Those are like the mainline Fantasy Star games. Um, but RPGs from Sega that reach all the way back to the Sega Master System from the 80s are uh, pretty great to get a collection of these. There's also Sega collections for the Switch that have these games on them. They're much more accessible that way, so if you want to play these games, the Switch version is the way to go. And also, Gauntlet Dark Legacy got uh, a GBA port on the 25th. Ooh, that's yeah. exciting. Wes is definitely excited. Yeah. But that's it. That's the GBA. <laughs> nice. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's uh, quite a few titles Four. coming out. Sure. Four. Sure. All right, mm. what else we got? Uh, well, you mentioned it earlier. Uh, Ratchet yeah. & Clank. Ratchet & Clank comes out. Um, this is uh, a PlayStation-exclusive platformer. I think it's meant to satisfy those people that probably wanted something akin to like a Mario 64 or uh, your uh, your Spyro Enter the Dragonfly. Mm. If that wasn't good enough for you, here and you funnily go. Funnily enough, like the the Spyro game that wasn't good enough, like the the developer of the original Spyro games, Insomniac, is the maker of this game. And Insomniac, if I'm not mistaken, like they'll they'll work on Ratchet and Clank, and I think a couple of other Sony things. But then when you get to the PlayStation 3, I think they go on to develop The Last of Us. Like, they, they again take mm -hmm. a turn away from, like, this, uh, like, more of like an all audience. Like, Spyro's very kid friendly. Ratchet and Clank is more of like an all audience. Then they go into, like, a very mature, like, uh, in terms of, like, heavy subject matter. Yeah. Well, you can tell by titles like uh, Quest for Booty. A crack in time, <laughs> full frontal, a full frontal assault. <laughs> yeah, real mature. Size matters. Yeah, yeah. Up your arsenal. <laughs> wow. So anyway, yeah, I, I've actually really never played these games. Um, I know the most recent installment from 2021 got a lot of love. People really seem to like yeah, that one. For sure. But on on whole, I really don't know much about this other than that it's a, it's more than a more than serviceable competitor in the 2D space. And certainly, outdoing out something like a what is it like Crash Bandicoot? Oh, I did a quick uh, fact check. Um, they actually move on to after Ratchet and Clank. They'll do the Resistance games, which are like these dark, gritty first-person shooters. And now they work on the Spider-Man games. Oh, okay, gotcha. But yeah, I mean, I, I played a so, little yeah. bit of the Ratchet and Clank games from time to time. I can't remember exactly which ones that I played, and you know, they seemed fine. I, I never really got yeah. too deep into them because they're a bit more like 
on the action side as opposed to a like action platformer. So, I don't know. Didn't really do it for me. I think Wes has more experience with these things. Yeah. Yep. Moving on. Yep. All right. Uh, Age of Mythology on PC. I don't know this one. Um, it is more of a Civ style take on like a Warcraft three. Uh, the idea being that you had one of like three major religions, mm. um, and you kind of build them up with technology and stuff like that. Take over the map and fight your opponents again. Uh, much more in the Civ, Sid, Sid Meier's Civ, than the Warcraft style of, of like an action RTS. Um, pretty popular game. Sold a couple million copies. Uh, again, PC exclusive. I don't know if they've ever. I mean, they probably ported these things at some point, but it's a big series. So, just mentioning that is out there. I wrote down with zero notes next to it, so we might be able to just say this one in one sentence. But The Simpsons skateboarding came huh, out on PS2. I don't know that one. Yeah, I'm, gu- I'm guessing it's a skateboarding game involving The Simpsons. I say it's the reason. <laughs> one can. Yeah, uh, we'll move on then. Um, so, the PlayStation 2 got a game called Shinobi. Mm. You heard of this one yep. by any chance? Yeah, the, okay, this is um, quite a slew of like third-person hack-and-slash action games, right? Like, I feel like we've had a ton of these come out recently, uh, you know, with things like Devil May Cry. We talked about Blood sure. Rain already. Um, the Lord of the Rings just last month gave us a, a very well-received take on one of these. And I guess that it's, uh, it's, supposed, it's supposed to be super violent hack-and-slash with, like, Weird mechanics like slow-mo and, and things like that. Notoriously difficult. Uh, it was originally scheduled for the Dreamcast, but, th- you know, things didn't work out that well for Sega, and PlayStation said, we'll take that off your mm. hands. So so that's that. Uh, BMX X we already talked about. That, that sort of exists. That is out there if you, if you want. Uh, probably the fan thing to come out <laughs> in this era. I don't know how far away we are from like a dead or alive beach volleyball, but we're not. Th- um, there's BMX. We're not. We're not that far. I know. Like, and and the yeah. dead or alive uh, actual uh, fighting games do, do have that particular service uh, in those games as well. But like BMX Triple X was like such like blatant exploitation that that it, and it was just like out of nowhere, like an extreme sports game, and then like to have like top frontal nudity like what is who is part of like the marketing team or like the the pr team that was like yeah this is this is what's going to make this a runaway hit i mean it didn't it didn't make it a runaway hit oh and of all of the extreme sports of this era bmx you're better (laughs) you know it shouldn't be you being a bmx shouldn't it be the inline rollerblading set aren't they the ones that would be the (laughs) triple x topless game first (laughs) Like have some fucking class. Yeah, and I think that that was the thing. Like, uh, games are becoming uh, very modern very quickly, and that's like the the, the PS2 GameCube generation. Uh, we're, we're getting like some some uh, things things about games that will stick around for a long, long time. Like this is where like games were actually starting to mature in terms of like how they're they're designed, the sort of like. Uh, language that we're using to talk about them, describe them, and play them is, is coming into like its own. It's sort of like becoming more cohesive across uh, platforms. Uh, but what's what's not maturing is is taste. It's still very juvenile. Where, like, mm-hmm. like you're saying, like there, there's not much class, especially in this case, <laughs> or when you have like 
uh, for for shock value, putting Jenna Jameson as a playable golfer in a game. Like, yeah, we, we know what you're doing, but don't, please don't. Yeah. Um, all right. So I'm just going to list all the sports oh, titles. You had NH- NHL 2003, FIFA 2003, Legends of Wrestling 2, and NCAA Final Four 2003. Ah, uh, this one. They still made NCAA games. Yeah, yeah. I believe 2000. Is it five or six? Is like when they stopped making the NCAA football mm. games. If I'm not maybe it was later than that. Maybe it was. I don't know. At any rate, um, yeah, a lot of sports titles coming out. I don't know FIFA's schedule, so like, I mean, FIFA is just like an organization that coordinates a bunch of different mm-hmm. leagues. So I, I don't know. I guess maybe November is a big time of year for Premier League and La Liga and all those other European sports leagues. I don't know. NHL, though, I do know is in full swing at this point. Um, NHL is just really, really big, so it makes sense that they would be coming out with that this time of year. And the Final Four, like college basketball, just started. I think last week, maybe. Yeah, yeah, pretty much last week. Um, so, like, we're nowhere near the Final Four. The Final Four is in March, obviously. Right. It's March Madness. Right. Right. But, anywho, those are all out there. I didn't look up anything specific about any of them because they're so iterative. There will be another... In, well, well, in 12 months, we'll talk about <laughs> NHL 2004, FIFA 2004, and NCAA Final Four 2004. All right, um, two more games, and that's that's kind of it for me. Uh, Tom Clancy's Splinter Cell. Oh really? Yeah, this is an Xbox game. I don't know about total sales. Like, I don't know what the best-selling games on Xbox were, but this one would end up selling, and this may be PC numbers too, but six million units. Uh, so very, very popular, very, very popular game, and also very well reviewed. I think that Tom Clancy's Splinter Cell is trying to be more like Metal Gear, hmm. without the needless worship of whatever that shit is that Metal Gear is like so into I guess dub detective 007 yeah. bond kind of stuff it's it's weird it's weird what Metal Gear is is really about when you play almost it. even like the the sort of uh, uh politics like uh, uh Kojima's take on world politics and issues of of war and uh weapons and arms and yeah it's it's uh, a, a guy who makes video games trying to make very high-minded, like, political stuff. Um, yeah, that's a good way to put it. But it will see a release on both PlayStation 2 and GameCube in 2003, so it does get ported. Okay, so that'll be just down the line. Um, yeah, and again, this got, like, really, really mm-hmm. good reviews. Yep. Um, so one of the better-reviewed games of the year, so I feel like it's worth mentioning. And yeah, it sold, sold a couple million copies at least, so good for it. And the last game um, is Roller Coaster Tycoon Ooh. 2. This is often cited, but I, this is actually often cited as, as one of the best theme park sims ever. Yeah. Made. Um, a lot of a lot of people have a lot of love for this one and remember it very fondly. I think it, it was a very robust game when it came out, but on all these different kinds of things, one of the most complex, like roller coaster building simulators around. This had the infamous uh, four-year roller coaster. Did you ever hear about that? No. The four-year roller coaster is a thing that you could do in the game where you basically made the largest, slowest, well, someone did, made the largest, slowest roller coaster in the world that took four years to finish. (laughs) And what would happen is when it finished, 
the driver or sorry the rider would get kicked out and the only path that they could take was back into the queue to ride it again (laughs) (laughs) it was one of those interesting displays of what you could do with a builder um i just remember that being hilarious that being so funny so yeah yeah it's out there for people that like uh you know the lemonade stand game essentially if you like that kind of shit there you go this is about the most complex belled and whistled out version of it yeah i really like this uh this game and it's one of those games that like it doesn't really move to other platforms whereas the first roller coaster tycoon uh will get like ported all over the place but it's it's like a really really cool like theme park designing thing where you know you you can just kind of like design a layout of the theme park and take like pre-built or prefabricated sort of designs of different types of roller coasters and kind of place them or you can like go all out and try to create your own look the, the sort of like goal for any individual like scenario that you're set up with cuz it's it's a bit like uh sim city in that it'll put you into a map and say okay here's what you have to work with um, and by this date in the in-game clock you need to uh, have paid off your your debt you need to have had this many visitors and you need to have a park rating from the visitors of this or higher so you know you need to keep in mind of who's coming to your park and like have stuff that cater to everyone uh, and sort of try to build this uh, theme park where a lot of people will come to and that will enjoy being there so they'll give you a high rating and the fun of it, I think, is like that sort of time management aspect for for me, to where like, okay, here's here's the goal date, and then once you once you pass that date, you can keep going and sort of like build what it, whatever it is that you want to build. You can continue to build off that, to just demolish the whole thing and start over to just like have have your lump of clay again to mold into whatever you want. Um, but well, I think a lot of the fun for people was designing your own thing. Um, for for me, like designing the actual roller coasters in the game, it was difficult to find that medium between having something that was way too rough and fast where people wouldn't want to ride it because people will, like look at it and think like, oh no, that looks way too dangerous and just walk away. Um, and having it be thrilling enough to where the, the thing wouldn't happen in reverse where people like would walk up to like no i want to ride something better than that and walk away and because you're on a time crunch it's like okay let's just build the feet prefabricated one until i've finished the scenario and then i can start from scratch and build my own but yeah I, I spent a lot of time on this game and the the first one back in the day on pc really really fun games yeah absolutely and with, with that, is that it? Is that all we got? Are you any any hidden gems? Anything? You I, think I think we're done. I think that's all of them. The long, long list of games. What a month! Wow, where was this shit? I know, right? July, you know, <laughs> is, people are not releasing games in July. Um, game of the month, Metroid Prime. Yes. Oh, it's number one on oh, yeah. the list. How could we not? How could we not put it there? I would also, but I would give some shout-outs for sure, like Marvel vs. Yeah. Capcom 2. I know it's a port, but what a game. Mm. Really, really solid. That Metroid Fusion game yeah, for sure. uh, is is probably worth a revisit for anyone that thinks that, you know, the Super Metroid is the best Metroid. Like, there you go. There, there's, there's a game made for that audience. And I think you can play Fusion on the 
Switch Online if you have the expansion pack for GBA. So that one is pretty accessible as well. Uh, I'll give another shout out to Resident Evil Zero. That is a, a really interesting game. Um, probably not the, the particular flavor of Resident Evil that I like from the classic ones, but a really interesting experiment in showing that they were trying to do different things with that uh, game series at the time. Yeah, really, really good month. And it's a few years away, but there, the next Resident Evil installment will will be an, another oh, yeah. revel, you know, revelation. Yeah, yeah. It'll be in yeah, that'll fantastic. totally change the direction of Resident Evil. They've never gone back to the the PS One style. But cool. So we will close this one out. This part one of two, and then when we're back, hopefully we'll have Wes with us, and we'll be able to talk all about the the music in the movies. Hell yeah, I've actually got quite a few movies. I've watched a bunch of them, so, you know. Cool, that's it. End of podcast. All right, later. Later.